Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to The Score Behind the Headlines, Episode 7, The Other Side. Behind the Headlines is an investigative podcast from 670 The Score. In Season 1, we're examining the 1993 murder of Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan. I'm Julie DeCaro with executive producer Tony Gill. We took two weeks in between our last two episodes, and we're glad our listeners have stuck out the short hiatus with us. It's going to be worth it for this week's episode. As we've talked about previously, one of the men convicted of the murder of James Jordan, Daniel Green, has been fighting for a new trial, well, basically since he was found guilty after a jury trial back in 1996. Last month, a North Carolina judge denied Daniel Green's motion for an evidentiary hearing, which would have been a major and necessary step in getting a new trial. Daniel Green's defense team plans to appeal, but right now, they're waiting for a written ruling from the judge to come down. So for now, more waiting. Chris Muma of the North Carolina Center for Actual Innocence is Daniel Green's attorney. Muma, the director of the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence... When you run into a case where you believe the person's innocent and there's a possibility to do something about it, you're not only driven by that case, you're driven by all the other ones you weren't able to do anything. And as we mentioned before, we've been in touch with Chris since the time we started researching the podcast, before we even recorded our first episode. Both Chris and Daniel have been following along with the podcast, and this week we finally got the chance to talk to Chris about Daniel's case. Now, you're going to hear a whole bunch of information in this episode that will probably be completely new to you. It was certainly new to us. And some of it is game-changing. First, we asked Chris about the denial of Daniel Green's motion for an evidentiary hearing. Daniel didn't get a hearing. As everybody needs to understand, there is all this evidence that is so questionable. And I, you know, I believe Daniel... Green is innocent, that he is not guilty of the charges he was convicted of. He is guilty of accessory after the fact. He is guilty of possession of stolen goods. He is not guilty of the things. And actually, I shouldn't just say not guilty. He is innocent of the crimes he was convicted of. But when you look at the list of question marks in this case, from factual to constitutional issues, the fact that he was denied a hearing is, is something that was unfathomable to me. I would have put anything and everything on the fact that he was entitled to a hearing. So more on where Daniel Green's case goes from here later in the episode. We had a lot of questions about the evidence in this case, and we started off asking Chris about the area where James Jordan was supposedly murdered, the intersection of I-95 and U.S. 74. This intersection was mentioned by Scott Robb early on in this podcast as an area infamous for drug trafficking. So many drugs flow, or at least back then, all you heard about was the trailers, the manufacturer, the, the mobile homes that would come up Interstate 95 from Florida 
packed, you know, the, the kind you see, the wide load with the, the vehicle, you know, escorting them on the interstate. And that, that was a huge part. And Robinson County was a huge stopping point in, in the cocaine trade back then. But if you'll recall, both District Attorney Johnson Britt and Larry Demery's attorney, Hugh Rogers, denied that characterization of the area. Here's Johnson Britt. There were areas where trucks had pulled over so much that it looked like a parking spot. Mm. But it was not an area that was known as a distribution site for drugs. Um, was, is, was an, is there a drug problem here? Yes. Uh, but we're no different than anywhere else in the country. If you're going to drop drugs, you don't drop it in an area where you might be seen and, or someone you're passing by. Most of the drugs that are distributed here are off the main, off the main roads back in the what I'm going to call the country. You know, maybe at a mobile home somewhere, it may be at a farmhouse, it may be at you know someone's residence, or it just may be the two cars meet somewhere. But that, you know. That's a fiction to say that that spot was one of the drug drops. But Chris Muma disputes that characterization. Well, first of all, Hugh Rogers and Johnson Britt are like lifelong childhood friends. They are going to agree on everything because they're going to talk about it and agree beforehand. I mean, there's plenty of evidence. Johnson Britt's personal opinion or Hugh Rogers' personal opinion about that is completely contradicted by by the absolute the evidence of what has happened in that county the convictions the arrests so you couldn't find anybody else in that county who would say that so it's interesting that those two say that and that wasn't the only time chris muma had issues with what johnson britt told us back in episode three so you know johnson britt he's he's a district attorney he's he's got this presence and this voice that that um, makes him believable, but the things he says are not true. Um, he talks about Daniel's violent history. Daniel didn't have a violent history. It was Demery that had a violent history. It was Demery that held a gun to someone's head and said, if you don't give me this stuff, I'm going to put this bullet in your head. That wasn't Daniel. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. If you'll remember back in a previous episode, we mentioned that Larry Demery stayed with Daniel Green's family while Green was in prison for hitting another teen in the head with an axe. Well, that case isn't exactly as it sounds, and Green's conviction was later overturned by a judge. The conviction was overturned, and it was overturned because there was so much evidence of self-defense that the prosecution didn't take into consideration and the defense attorney didn't take into consideration. And you got to remember, this defense attorney was later became prosecutor in Durham, uh, Fred Black. 
and it was determined that she closed out all of her cases as a defense attorney through plea deals so she could move on to her position as a prosecutor in Durham. Daniel pled guilty to something that should have been presented as a self-defense case, and, and that is what the court found when it overturned his conviction. It was a self-defense case. A couple teenagers, you know, fighting over a girl. The other teenager came at Daniel with a knife, and uh, Daniel picked up something off the porch. He did not use the axe end of the axe. He used the handle end and said, don't keep coming at me with the knife. I'm going to hit you. And he, the other kid kept coming at him with the knife. So it was self-defense. And while Johnson Britt and Hugh Rogers both talked about Green's violent history prior to the murder of James Jordan, Chris Muma says that's not true. There's a number of robberies, armed robberies, that, um, that Demery took part in. Daniel took a plea to um, two robberies after he was convicted of the murder. In one of them, he admits that he was involved in. He acknowledges he was involved. He was there with Demery. The other one, he was not part of. And he just basically had given up on the justice system at that point. But the one he was not involved in, that Demery was involved in, uh, a man was shot during that robbery. The other robbery that Daniel acknowledges he was there with Demery, the victims of that robbery testified that Daniel was kind of hanging out in the background and he didn't say much and Demery was the one with the gun and Demery was the one that was making the threats. Those, those are facts. That's not my opinion. Those are facts. Let's go back a bit. Remember what Johnson Britt previously said about finding the gun used to murder James Jordan in Daniel Green's home? That gun was taken during a robbery that had occurred a week to 10 days earlier in which they robbed a country store and Daniel Green shot the clerk, an elderly man who had been a security guard earlier in his life in Baltimore. Um, he had had the gun then. He had saved it. He kept it under the counter at the store, and that gun was stolen. They had committed a robbery at a motel in a motel parking lot in Roland, North Carolina, which is on the North Carolina-South Carolina line, where they robbed two couples who were traveling from... Rhode Island or Massachusetts to Florida, and they'd stayed the night and gotten up early in the morning to get a head start and finish their drive to Florida, and they're robbed in the parking lot, and during the course of that robbery, uh, they steal a video camera. Well, Chris Moomin thinks she knows exactly why that gun was in Daniel Green's room. The big deal made about the gun being found in Daniel's room, that's where Demery slept. That's where evidence from the robbery that Demery committed was found. Then we have the blood evidence that was supposedly found in James Jordan's car, submitted by the prosecution to corroborate Larry Demery's version of events in which a sleeping James Jordan is murdered in his car by Daniel Green. And Chris Muma cleared up a big mistake that we made in talking about the blood evidence. The blood evidence... And, and I got to correct something that you have in your podcast where you say the blood was in the driver's seat. It wasn't in the driver's seat. It was in the passenger side from supposedly where Jordan shot in the driver's seat, which I don't believe he was. And then his body was dragged across the console into the passenger seat. So the question of the blood is even 
more extensive than what you have gone through in the podcast because you're talking about blood spatter and blood in the driver's seat, but his body is dragged across the car, um, and there's this one little spot in the crack of the passenger seat. It makes no sense. If you look at Larry Demery's testimony and what he says about what he could see when James Jordan was shot and where he was and where Daniel was, there's only like six inches in the in the window where Daniel's hand could have been through the window and shooting. If you look at every possible position that James Jordan could have been in from reclining to any any level of sitting up and any position that Daniel's arm could have been in in those six inches, the bullet trajectory does not work. It couldn't, he could not have been shot in the way Demery says he was shot. And what about the prosecution's claims that Daniel Green was in possession of James Jordan's glasses, as well as one of the NBA rings that belonged to his son, Michael? Johnson Britt uh, opened the trial with a stipulation about the jewelry that Daniel Green was wearing and the glasses that Daniel Green was wearing. And he said that stipulation uh, came from his meeting with Michael Jordan. It was not true that I mean, the, the, the SBI report and the law enforcement report about what happened in that meeting do not support what Johnson Britt put in that stipulation. That stipulation was, was written in a way to cause the jury to be inflamed uh, against Daniel Green from from the get-go. The glasses Daniel's wearing in the and I have the picture. I have the picture that Johnson Britt says he showed to Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan used it to identify the All-Star ring and the NBA championship ring and the watch and the glasses. Those glasses that Daniel's wearing in that picture, they, they look like the kind of glasses you might wear if you're uh, using a, a chainsaw or something. They're definitely not James Jordan's glasses. The NBA championship ring, Johnson Britt mentions it over and over that he had the championship ring. Daniel Green never had the championship ring. He had the all-star ring and he had the watch. And those things were found in the console of the Lexus which Daniel referred to as a secret compartment because he was so unfamiliar with cars that had these consoles. He, he considered it a secret compartment. And that jewelry was found um, two days after they got rid of the body. So, yeah, they say the spoils of the murder were, were all with Daniel. Well, Demery had the man's wedding ring. How much more personal can you get than that? When James Jordan left Charlotte, He was wearing his wedding ring and the NBA championship ring. The wedding ring, Demery had. And the championship ring, there are people who who would be willing to testify that Demery said he traded it for drugs. And if he had realized how valuable it was at the time he traded it, he wouldn't have. So Demery certainly had spoils. Then we asked Chris Muma about one of the most troubling aspects of this case, the police's failure to investigate the potential involvement of the drug-dealing son of corrupt Sheriff Hubert Stone, Larry Deese. Remember, a phone call to Larry Deese, who worked with Larry Demery at Crestline Mobile Homes, 
was one of the very first calls placed from James Jordan's cell phone in the hours after his murder. We know what Larry Deese's connection was to Larry Demery, but was Larry Deese also a friend of Daniel Green's? Chris Muma says no. Daniel had no connection to Deese whatsoever and did not know him. Demery, on the other hand, had connections with Deese. The mother of Demery's children, her father worked at Crestline. Uh, Demery had previously worked at Crestline. Deese worked at Crestline. Crestline was known for being used for drug trafficking uh, in their vehicles. So there's, there's connection between Deese and Demery. There's no connection with Green. I think in the, the initial filings, there was a statement that you know, even though there was this connection with Deese, he was never interviewed. Well, he was interviewed. There's a list of about 144 people who were interviewed as part of this case, and there is documentation showing that Huber Larry Deese was interviewed, and lo and behold, the only interview that's missing from the files is the interview of Hubert Larry Deese. Let's say that one more time to make sure everyone got it. According to Daniel Green's attorney, Chris Muma, the police did interview Larry Deese about the phone call to him from Larry Demery and Daniel Green in the hours after James Jordan's murder. But that interview is now missing. That directly contradicts what D.A. Johnson Britt told us, which was that Larry Deese was never interviewed by law enforcement. Did uh, Larry Deese ever come in for questioning? On this, not. Okay. Not. So was Larry Deese interviewed by police or not? As of right now, that issue remains murky. And remember that the judge refused to allow Daniel Green's defense team to delve into the Larry Deese issue because there was no evidence that Larry Deese was the son of Hubert Stone and that Deese worked with Larry Demery. Well, the prosecution wasn't exactly forthcoming on that evidence at trial. I mean, the state stood there while the defense was struggling to present this evidence that the phone call was to, to Hubert Lowry Deese, that, that Deese worked with Demery. The, the state stood there and, and listened to the defense try and present this evidence to the judge. And the judge say, well, you, you can't prove any of that is true, so you can't bring it in, in as a defense. And the state had it all in their files. They knew it was all true. And what about Johnson Britt's claim that corrupt Sheriff Hubert Stone couldn't have steered the investigation away from his son, Larry Deese, because the SBI, State Bureau of Investigation, was involved in the case of the James Jordan murder from the outset? There's a teletype from the FBI to the State Bureau of Investigation saying, listen, we've been investigating drug trafficking in that area. Hubert Stone is being investigated. Hubert Larry Deese is being investigated. Hubert Larry Deese is Hubert Stone's son. We have given you all this information and we recognize that this is a local matter, so we're hands off. So the FBI was not investigating the case. And the FBI, some, some of the agents who were involved in that uh, I mean, I, I, there, there's questionable relationships there, too. But the Robeson County Sheriff's Department was absolutely, those, those were the people who were in all the interrogations. Those were the people who were uh, doing the interviews out on, out on boots on the ground. Um, and those were the people who were later found to be part guilty through uh, 
Operation Tarnished Badge. There's two people still in prison for Operation Tarnished Badge. And uh, I went and interviewed one of them, and he said, you know, he was he was clean for like 10 years, and then he said it was just a free-for-all, that the collection of drugs and the selling of the drugs by law enforcement and taking kickbacks, it, it was, he said it, it just was silly not to take part because everybody was taking part. We talked about Operation Tarnished Badge back in episode two. It was a federal corruption probe that took down nearly the entire Robeson County Sheriff's Office on allegations ranging from drug trafficking to kidnapping to armed robbery. We also asked about a range of seemingly obvious mistakes at trial, notably the failure to call Daniel Green's alibi witnesses who wanted to testify that he stayed at a party the entire night of James Jordan's murder while Larry Demler left and came back later. There's absolutely a lot of people who have information that would be helpful with this case who don't want to be involved. You know, one person who signed an affidavit, Melissa Grooms, who was is a very strong alibi witness for Daniel. You know, she tried to be involved as a teenager and was threatened by by law enforcement. And her mother told her, don't get involved. As an adult, she struggled with whether she should get involved or not. But uh, in the end, she signed an affidavit saying she was there all night. She was not family. She didn't know any of them. And she knows that Larry Demery left by himself and came back by himself, just as Daniel has said. Bobby Gemarillo um, was, and that's another, you know, Bobby Gemarillo was interviewed by the defense during the trial for the first time. And there is a very lengthy interview from her, with her from the time of the trial where the investigator, she says, I was there all night. Daniel was with me. He never left. Uh, it's incredibly strong statement. And that was part of our ineffective assistance of counsel claim. I think it was last minute, which shouldn't have been the case. They should have been talking to her before the trial started. And they just didn't incorporate it into their defense. But Bobby Jo Marillo gave a statement during the trial, and she has given a statement more recently saying Daniel was there all night. So you have Melissa Grooms and Bobby Jo Marillo, who have no, re- no relationship with Daniel Green, no reason to be anything but truthful, and, and Ebony Green, who is his sister, but was also there all night. So you have three solid alibi witnesses. And what about Connie Brayboy? the former editor of the Carolina Indian Voice and member of the Lumbee Indian community, like Larry Demery, who signed an affidavit saying that Larry Demery confessed to her to killing James Jordan on his own. We briefly made contact with Connie, who agreed to come on the podcast before going radio silent on us and not responding to further messaging. So Connie Brayboy signed an affidavit. Um, you know, nobody, nobody wants to be involved in this case. Um, it's a messy case, and that involves, you know, people that are idolized uh, across the country. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, went to, I went to Carolina with Michael Jordan. Mm. Um, I saw him walk just like every other person on campus. So, you know, I, I'm not as starstruck um, have a lot of respect for the man, but it doesn't. That really doesn't play into whether there's been justice served in this case. Um, but you know, Connie Brayboy doesn't want to be involved in this. And then it was while we were talking about affidavits and Larry Demery's supposed multiple confessions 
that Chris Momo dropped this bomb on us. Let me explain what the motion for reconsideration included. That included my interview of Larry Demery on December 31st of 2018, where he told me that what he testified to was not true. That he was, he was given the facts to testify to that would, that would shore up the conviction. So let me just be clear on that. Demery had more stories to come up with, but the bottom line was he said his testimony was false. And he said that he would testify that to that if he if it brought in to testify. So to not have that considered at a hearing, it's like I said, it's unfathomable. If you don't want to believe him, that's fine. But to not have the opportunity to hear what he has to say, have that be denied was just completely unexpected. Okay, okay. So let's stop for a moment and think about what this means. Daniel Green has multiple alibi witnesses who claim he was at a party at the time James Jordan was murdered. We have a state forensics expert who now says she's unsure if James Jordan's blood was found in the car where he was supposedly shot at point-blank range. We have a prosecution that relied entirely on Larry Demery's testimony to make their case that Daniel Green was not only present, but was the murderer of James Jordan. And now Larry Demery says his testimony at Daniel Green's trial was false. We've learned that Larry Demery told Daniel Green's lawyer, Chris Muma, on December 31st, 2018, that he never saw Daniel shoot James Jordan. Further, Larry Demery says the prosecution coached him as to what to say to ensure the conviction of Daniel Green and kept pressuring him to add more false details to strengthen their case against Green. Larry Demery also said if Daniel Green was granted a new trial, he would testify that he gave false evidence against his childhood friend. So what did the prosecution have to gain by any of this anyway? Why try to force the conviction of a young man rather than just following the evidence where it naturally went? How did the prosecution decide to believe Larry Demery over Daniel Green anyway? Because Demery was willing to implicate Daniel. It's the standard approach. You have two people who are connected to this vehicle uh, in the phone calls. You put them in separate rooms. You threaten both of them with the death penalty. You know, law enforcement in the interrogation of Daniel says, you know, this is a, this is a needle in your ass that you don't come back from. Threatened with the death penalty over and over again. Demery doesn't say much during his interrogation. It's all them talking to him. Demery doesn't say anything until after the interrogation. It's clear from the stories they give that Daniel and Demery have agreed that they're going to come up with this story that somebody pulled up and, and Demery said he was out of gas or I, don't, I, don't, I can't even remember the story they came up with. It, it was kind of a standard story, a, a 17 uh, an 18-year-old would come up with didn't make a whole lot of sense. And, you know, Daniel tries to do his best to stick with it throughout the interrogation. But they're, they're both being threatened. They're both being told the other one is saying they did it. Their families are being threatened. It's, so it's the standard practice. It's the standard approach. Try, let's just 
give them all these threats and say we have all this evidence and see who breaks down first. My theory in this case is that bringing Hubert Lowry Deese into it was going to make the story that James Jordan was sleeping on the side of the road and these two boys just decided to rob him, uh, it was going to make it messy. I don't believe James Jordan was sleeping on the side of the road. I don't. The ballistics expert we hired, the shooting could not have happened the way it was described. The lack of the bullet hole in the shirt, and, and it wasn't just the medical examiner saying in his report, there's no bullet hole. He, he drew diagrams of the bullet holes. Uh, he looked, he specifically looked for the bullet hole. It wasn't just him missing it. He was looking for it. The fact that he couldn't find a bullet hole was highlighted in the prosecution's file. I just, so I don't believe he was shot in his car. We know that Demery called uh, his, his cousin in New York that night and said he was going to be bringing a delivery to New York. We know that. There's a phone record of it. There's statements from the family in New York. So that is completely consistent with Demery trying to get Daniel to go to New York with him. And Daniel saying, no, I, I might have a shot with this girl, which anybody who's raised an 18-year-old boy knows that's priority. So there is a lot of evidence that supports the fact that Demery, or the theory that Demery was going to pick up a vehicle that was loaded with drugs, which is how they moved the drugs. And it, there's a lot of evidence in the Federal Bureau of Investigations files showing that they know that's how they moved the drugs and Crestline was involved. And, you know, I, my theory is that uh, James Jordan and his luxury vehicle were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Whether you want to call it unintentional tunnel vision, where, you know, they're focused on their suspect and, and the facts that point away from that suspect just unintentionally don't have the value that they should, or you want to call it intentionally ignoring facts that don't take you down the tunnel you're trying to go down, uh, it happens all the time. You know, and and we see it in our exoneration cases all the time, where there the evidence was there, but nobody wanted to deal with it because it hurt their case. I mean, we we saw it in a case we just went through hearing uh, this last two weeks. I've been called pathologically hopeful that I'm always pathologically hopeful that that the prosecutors in these cases will will take a step back and objectively look at the evidence and it it just it just doesn't happen they're they're more interested in uh, protecting the conviction than ensuring justice has actually been served the post-conviction process is definitely um, <laughs> focused on I mean we're, the system is focused on finality as soon as that jury makes the verdict or the plea is taken you know, you have your opportunity to appeal if you went to trial, and and then we want to be done. It's an underfunded, overloaded system that is ready to move on to the next case once the case is closed. The problem is that things are done very differently 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say they're perfect because the case we just we were just fighting on was a conviction from 2011. Um, so it's still not perfect, but it certainly is better than it was 20 or 30 years ago. You could open any file from 30 years ago, and you, I bet you'll find a constitutional violation, you know, Brady violation or something. It's an underfunded, overloaded system, and we want to, and it's focused on dealing with the cases that are in front of them right now, and we don't want to revisit the past. People have asked me, when should we say a case is final? Well, if somebody's innocent, never. Uh, you know, if there's evidence of innocence, never. Because the victim didn't get justice, the innocent person didn't get justice, and the true perpetrator didn't get justice. So, where does Daniel Green go from here? I still don't believe it's the right ruling. Um, so where do we go from here? We will, uh, we, you know, once we get a judge's order, and, and hopefully the judge won't just accept the state's version, uh, once we get the judge's order, we, we will file a petition to have the Court of Appeals reconsider the judge's denial of all the claims without a hearing. Uh, I think the law is clear that a hearing was required at least on part of it. Back in episode one, we talked with Washington Post reporter Cal Swinton, who recently wrote a book on wrongful convictions. At the time, he told us that the criminal justice system in the United States isn't designed to fix its mistakes. Was there a mistake made in the case? Julie and I will weigh in on that in a future episode. Chris Muma believes Daniel's motion for an evidentiary hearing may have been denied because of political reasons or because the case is high profile or because it's Michael Jordan's father or for other reasons too politically sensitive to say, but it wasn't denied because of the law. She believes the law required a hearing. The decision not to have a hearing should be overturned on appeal unless those other reasons come into play. The current attorney general in North Carolina is a guy named Josh Stein. He's one of the few people positioned to lobby for a new trial for Daniel Green. But Chris Muma told us that Stein has his eye on the governor's mansion and has put all his effort into keeping this case from being heard rather than objectively looking at the evidence. And while Stein made taking brave positions part of his campaign promises, Muma doesn't believe they are actually on his agenda. There's a petition on change.org asking Attorney General Josh Stein to grant Daniel Green a new trial for his freedom. So far, more than 1,500 people have signed. Next time on The Score Behind the Headlines. My name is uh, Daniel. I've been locked up since I was 18 years old. Score Behind the Headlines is written and researched by Julie DeCaro and is executive produced by me, Tony Gill. New episodes are posted Monday of each week on Radio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Julie DeCaro, at Tony Gill 670, and at 670 The Score. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.